What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. As always, this is your host, Ben Picolsi, bringing you the greatest guests and the greatest information on the planet to help you live your greatest life in a body you love. This podcast is brought to you by Organifi. Organifi is a longtime sponsor of the podcast, an incredible, incredible product that I've been using personally for a long time. And you guys know that I'll intentionally seek out the best quality ingredients to put in my body. I don't use a lot of products, like transparently. I try to use as little as I possibly can. So when I do consume things, I make sure the highest quality and they're serving a purpose. So when we're using something like greens, we're using something like res, we're using something like Organifi Gold, they all serve a very specific purpose. So if I'm taking the gold, honestly, it's usually something that calms me down at night. If usually I'll drink a tea or Organifi Gold to really kind of settle in and help improve sleep. So if you're someone who's maybe challenged with sleep or stress is really high for you, I suggest the Organifi Gold. If you're someone, perhaps a man, as we age, we're looking for increased blood flow. Uh, we want to make sure we support that into any age, ultimately. Anyone who trains want to support increased blood flow. So the Organifi Reds is a really good solution for you. And the greens is just a general catch-all. If, you're, if you want to feel better, it's got some great adaptions in, in there. It's got some great vitamins in there. So it's a great thing if you just want to step up your health, right? We want to just kind of cover all of our bases as far as, you know, sometimes we don't get enough vegetables in the day. Sometimes we don't get enough micronutrients in the day. Sometimes we're not able to take the vitamins. And Organifi Green is a great way to support your internal health. And remember, your internal health expresses in your external body. So if you're not happy with your external body, start paying attention to your internal health. Organifi.com slash muscle is where you get hooked up with 20% off. Organifi.com slash muscle. Get hooked up. Don't forget about it. Coming back to join us for a second time is Mr. Mike DeSanti, one of the most downloaded episodes of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, which, by the way, is now approaching 10 million downloads in our lifetime. So thank you to all of the amazing listeners. It uh, never ceases to amaze me, the, the support we continue to get, uh, both from our listeners and our sponsors, our longtime supporters of the show. Um, so today, Mike joins me in-house to talk about his unique model and his unique approach to behavior change, whether you be a man or a woman. Changing your behaviors can be very, very hard, creating an awareness around them. And then a step-by-step process is really what Mike makes his living doing and ultimately leading men. I recently actually joined one of Mike's coaching groups called Find Your Tribe which is a group of eight men simply discussing the challenges we're facing and how to overcome them. It's been an incredible experience. Uh, Mike is an absolute wealth of information and an absolute incredible man. And I'm super grateful to call him a friend and invite him back to the show. What does it look like to be start, start becoming aware of intentionality? You know, there's, there's a, uh... You know, last time I was here, we talked about context, worldview, and paradigm. And I think one of the most important things is that when we are looking at our motives or our motivations, to actually question, like, why? Why and who's really telling me that? Ah, beautiful. There's so many men, we were talking about it earlier, that, that are really like head down, barreling through to accomplish something. Someone else's values. A lot of times, it's my parents' values, my yeah, culture's society, values, yeah, yeah. society's values, my religion's values, where I'm like, and, and when they actually stop and pause, and I say, well, who's really that voice in your head that's motivating you toward that? And also, what are you associating with by accomplishing it? Right. And so, uh, well, I'll, I'll be free, and I'll be happy, fulfilled, 
And then as they start to talk it out loud and really break it down and distinguish it, like, well, hold on, whose voice is that in your head? And what's the motivating factor for it? What do you associate with it? Right. And what are the, what are the prices you're actually paying along the way too? Who are you trying to prove right? Who are you trying to prove or, right? Or wrong. Also, yeah, yeah, and also too is like, are there priorities that are suffering along this, what we may agree or disagree is a noble endeavor? Right. Are you, what, what's your time with your family like? What are your relationships, your marriage like? What's your health like? I mean, how many times have we seen, you know, a man get to some level of success, but his health is destroyed in the, in the process? Yeah. Or they accomplish so. something and then their marriage is in the gutter. Yeah. And we see it over and over and over again because that narrative is really pointing towards men. To, you just go produce, you go accomplish, get the status, get yeah. the money, and then you could live your best life in the like what last 11 years of it or something you know it's funny i, I said I, I just turned 40 and i set the 10-year goals you know for 40 to 50 and one of my friend goes yeah but what, what happens when you get terminal cancer at 49 so i said all these financial goals and i was like accomplishment goals and he goes yeah what happens when you do that oh damn you <laughs> i have to think about that so i mean it's it's right like we're, we're all we're all pursuing these worthy or maybe unworthy ideals and we don't stop to question uh, what's going to be sacrificed along the way so how then in your um experience does a man or a woman ultimately um one become aware of their um their their direction and, and then start to maybe question where those came from so there I, I really break down the formula that i use in all of my coaching into a simple equation is that results are awareness plus committed action and so the awareness is great mm -hmm. you know it's 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 necessary and much needed to question your belief systems your paradigm your worldview whose voice is that in my head and all those limiting beliefs and i, I always talk about uh when clients are trying to uh convince me of their limitations it's a very simple question it's like, well, says who right oh wait says me or says my parents says my culture I'm like, all right well great if it says you and you could say something else. Mm -hmm. we, we've got to develop that, that awareness first. But a lot of times, and I think a, a challenge currently right now with all personal development and all this self-help and all this awareness is that people think that awareness is all I need. But you need awareness plus a new committed action. You've got to put that awareness into a, a deliberate direction. I say awareness is like the 50-yard line. Committed action is the end zone. Right. They're not the same thing. Right. And I think uh, one of the most valuable things to re-identify and distinguish is really the barometer of fulfillment. You said, like, well, what are the prices I'm paying for that endeavor? And what are the prices I'm paying for moving forward with trying to accomplish X, Y, or Z? And one of the things I distinguish in my book is between success and fulfillment. Success is a particular accomplishment in a particular domain of your life. Maybe it's in your health or in your finances, in your marriage. It's, a, it's, a, it's an accomplishment in a particular domain of life. The way I distinguish that from fulfillment is where all the domains of my life get the appropriate amount of love and attention. Hmm. That my health gets the appropriate amount of love and attention. My finances get the appropriate amount of love and attention. My marriage, my children my leisure life, my travel life, the things I love to do that I don't get paid for, right. that they all receive the appropriate amount of love and attention. Right. And I use the word appropriate deliberately yeah. because 
they're not equal. It's different person yeah, to person. Absolutely. So how do we know? How, how do we know what, what's appropriate, right? Is it just like what makes me feel best? Well, what I would say is that all of those areas, those domains, a, a domain in life is an area that yeah. deserves love and attention. Yeah. So if an area or a domain of life is suffering, that's a great indicator and barometer to me that it needs extra love and attention. Mm. And I, as a man, as a human being, it's on me and my responsibility to recalibrate. Huh. To recalibrate, okay, maybe I'm giving too much love and attention to career over here. And meanwhile, my wife is saying, hey, uh, I feel like I don't see you and you're not present. Well, that's, a, that's great feedback that something is suffering, yeah. that something's being harmed. And so for a dynamic, that's, that's the man that could have all of his commitments, all of his domains and areas be operating in excellence, that everything is actually operating to the degree where it's healthy. Right. And that, that and sounds that's, like it. That's that, a whole recalibration for most men. Right. That sounds like a, you know, a worthy idea. That sounds like, yes, I want to get there. But um, what if I'm, what's going through my head right now is like, I, I'm already struggling in this area, in this area, in this area. Like, and, and I'm, even the area where I'm putting most time, maybe I'm struggling there too. So what does the recalibration look like? And how do I, how do I maybe improve efficiency? Maybe we change the goal line. Like what are, what are the steps and processes behind that? One of the biggest things that I do in, in my courses, we do an honest audit. Let's list these domains, health, finance, marriage, relationships, you know, friendships and family, yeah. you know, our children, our, our, uh, you know, our finances, our leisure, our spiritual life. And let's do an honest audit of them rather than let's just mix them all together mm -hmm. and think like, oh, my, my career is going to fix all of them. It's not. We have to really take a holistic view of our life as an uh, you know, interrelated web. But we also have to distinguish it as, okay, is this struggling? Is this, you know, right now maybe it's challenged or uh, if, I, if I stick with it, with what I'm doing, like it'll move north to it's operating smoothly or sustainably. And so we've, we've actually got to break down those domains, not into, well, this sucks or this is great, but into actually like, wait, if, if I don't intervene here, it's leading towards something destructive. Mm -hmm. If I don't intervene here in my health, if I don't interrupt it or intervene, this is going to lead somewhere that's destructive and harmful. If I don't intervene right now in my marriage and really seek the guidance or the skill set or the communication, like this is going south. This is going to become harmed or really suffer. Right. And so we've got to distinguish that first and say, okay, these areas are working. They're producing the results that I want. Uh, I, they're healthy. They're, they're uh, you know, interdependent. They're working. And so now what over here really is the new priority? What needs to really move north? And maybe for some, and those are different seasons. Totally. There's a season when you start a business, like I hope yeah. that that's your main priority. Yeah. And then there's a season when maybe you get married, I hope that's your main priority. And there's a season where, you know what, right now, my health, that, that needs to be the main priority. And then using uh, our skills of awareness, our gift of awareness to say, how much belongs here, how much belongs here, how much belongs here. And that's an evolution. It's a, I don't think that's a summit. I think that's actually something that's very fluid and evolving right. because every quarter, every year, right. every 10 years, like you just did a 10-year audit, yeah. 
I hope your priorities at 40 were a little different than, than your priorities at 20. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure they were. That was actually my, my next question is like, how often should people be setting these priorities, right? Like how often we should, would be, should we be reflecting and, and looking through, you know, here's what I've done for the last, you know, set period of time. Here's what I've done, what I intend to do for the next period of time. Because I think most people go through life and it's never intentional, right? It's yeah. like, I'm just going to arrive and I'm, I'm going to work hard, quote unquote, in that area. Right. It's like working hard on transforming your body. It doesn't work. Like if with that, unless you have very specific actions and you know that they're the right actions, right. You, you're not going to end up where you want to go. I think, uh, I think you, you, you nailed it because there's, there's something I, I call, it's a natural law, but it's the law of accuracy. The law of accuracy states that we must put our, our priority energy, our focused energy into what's most important in that season of life. And so there's so many people that are spending so much energy. They're just spending it in inaccurate places, non-priority places, or non-essential places. And so to answer your question, I'm a big proponent of five-year blocks. I think people underestimate how much they can move and intentionally adjust the needle of their life and the trajectory of their future. I think they radically underestimate what you could actually do in a five-year chunk. So with a lot of my clients, what we do is we actually do a five-year from now, and now let's reverse goal set it. Let's reverse engineer it to three years, two years. Then I bring it down to a year and 90 days. The 90-day mark, the seasonal mark, or the quarterly mark, for me, is a, is a constant audit and recalibration of, yeah. this is where I said I want to be in five years. Well, what am I doing now that's trending me toward it right. or trending me further away from it? And that's really where I think those honest audits should really actually happen quarterly. Learning how to make decisions in the fitness industry with your health outcomes ultimately is imperative to your success. Simply following a plan or following someone else's plan may not always work unless you're getting real-time, up-to-the-minute changes and adjustments from somebody who is an expert. And today's guest is absolutely an expert. Luke Lehman joined me once again, a second-time guest of the podcast, to talk about everything to do with muscles and body transformations. Absolute wealth of information being passed to you through this podcast. And I know you guys are going to absolutely love it. Kind of taxing different systems, right? So the nervous system versus the muscular system versus maybe the energy production of the mitochondria in the liver, the ability to clear lactate. So uh, if someone, if you know someone is neurologically fatigued because of the sympathetic overdrive, you know, switching to something that's more muscular based or more energy based, meaning going to require the mitochondria to produce more energy or tax the liver. It's just going to be a different system. Does that sound, kind of sound like it's yeah. alignment? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So, and everybody has their individual tolerance of things. Like, um, I'm on the, I've always been a strength athlete. Everything's always been a extreme, fast, heavy, um, violent type of thing. Uh, well, yeah, Texas high school football, right? But that's just, that's just the way I'm built, right? Yeah. I've got a jacked up uh, nervous system, massive ADD. Um, I've always been a big guy, um, even not, not when I'm training, I, I didn't train for six years and I was still 110 kilos. Um, uh, so it's like, that works for me. I can, I can go in and do twice a day, five days a week, uh, three, two, one wave loading and be totally fine. But I can give that to someone else and it will crush them within a few days and they'll be mm -hmm. massive 
neurologically overtrained and they can't handle it. So I got you. Yeah, you've got to you, the the whole the art of coaching and, and and what we should be doing is looking at that client saying, okay, when do your metrics change? When do your symptoms increase? Okay, now I need to figure out what's causing the subjective and objective data to just get screwed up because now I know you're overreaching. So now I need to pull you out of overreaching so you can supercompensate and get bigger and faster and stronger. So that segues beautifully into a question that I had for you is when someone comes into your world for the first time, you've never worked with them. What, what are you looking at um, maybe subjectively or objectively to determine where this person is neurologically? So an example being some people, you know, are, tend to be very fast twitch, very sympathetically oriented. Some people come tend to be slightly more slow twitch or more parasympathetically oriented or anywhere on that continuum. Mm. Obviously, they may require different types of stimuli. They may recover differently. They may be able to record, uh, subject themselves to more or less work accordingly. So do you have some means of assessing people or is it just like what do you look like and what's your athletic history? Yeah, so kind of our, our system that we've developed over the last uh, six years is we, we want to look at subjective metrics find out everything we can about how they feel and what they're feeling. And that's really important to people. You, you can't just look at objective data. I need to know like how they feel about themselves, how they feel about, on our questionnaire, we ask things like, how do you feel if someone comments negatively on your physique? How do you feel when somebody says something positive? How do you feel when you go off your nutritional plan? How do you feel when you miss a workout? So we ask very subjective questions about that. Um, and then other things like how, how are you pooping on a scale of one to 10? Um, how are you sleeping? How's your stress? What do you do for a living? How many hours do you work? So we're getting uh, all this. You make them answer those questions once? We, what we do is once because we, we maintain so much communication with our clients by six months into it. We know everything about them. So, and we know the tone of their emails and how they're talking to us on text or on sure. video. Yeah. We can tell when they're, we, we start learning those personality swings and those mood swings. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get a good pattern of how long we can keep them on certain things. Um, and then we also get some objectives. So if they've got an aura ring, we'll get some of that information. We use Elite HRV and a heart rate strap to get HRV, get uh, morning heart rate, afternoon heart rate. We use body temperature. We use blood glucose if they'll take it. But a, a lot, we, train probably 95% other coaches and other personal trainers. So they will get that type of data, like the, the blood glucose. But right. most of your gem pop people aren't going to do that unless they're diabetic or pre-diabetic. Um, yeah, so we get all that stuff. And then we use that as a guide. Once we get a good pattern and a good trend, we say, okay, this person's resting heart rate is way too high. Their blood pressure is way too high. Their body temperature is way too low. And then we determine what we're going to give them as far as conditioning, lifting, nutrition, supplementation, and also lifestyle uh, recommendations. We get them pretty good and pretty level, um, get them really healthy first. So we're all about health before performance. Of course. Yeah, we get them healthy first. Then we start beating the shit out of them. And then we watch their symptoms. So if their symptoms go, you know, crumble, Okay, let's take some of your metrics for four or five days. If we see that those metrics have gone too far off the baseline, we know they're overreaching. It's time to go to a deload. And usually we see about a week and then all of a sudden all their metrics get perfect again and then we can beast them out again. So we go from, we get them healthy and then we go beast mode, then we go to least mode and then back to beast mode. Man, I love that you talk. I think that's why we get along well in this, in this um, space because 
I think there's not enough people going, okay, before, you know, everyone comes like, I got 12 weeks, let's get in shape. And I just told no. I was like, well, go work yeah. with somebody else. Like I really always say, I always jokingly say, any chimpanzee can get you in shape um, just by starving you and giving you more cardio. That's not the goal, yeah. right? But first, let's make you healthy. And uh, that that's there's a lot of subjective and objective things there. I'd like to talk about all the objective things that you're looking at when someone comes in and says, hey, I, I want to make you healthy. And, and so what are the objective variables we're looking at there to, to kind of the physiological prerequisites to to uh, hypertrophy ultimately, right? What, how do we objectify health? I mean, we look at you got to look at things like we've got two different gut gut questionnaires we give people, right? Uh, and the reason we do it's like a personality test. Sometimes they mark something zero on one, but then they click a yes on the other. So we we like to have things that kind of uh, checks and balances against themselves. So if their guts wrecked, they're bloating, gassy. You know, if they if they take a crap and it's feeling pain off the walls, you know, if they have burning in their stomach, we want to look at all that stuff first because you're not going to grow if you're not getting the food into your body. Mm-hmm. And people people tend to think that just because you swallow food that it's in your body, but it's not. Um, that alimentary canal that runs from your mouth to your anus has a protective barrier, and not everything you eat will get in your body. So. Um, it's really important from a growth perspective that if you want to be in a surplus, eating 4,000 calories doesn't mean you're in a surplus if you're just pooping it out or if your bacteria is eating it and you're not actually getting it in you. So we want to we want to clean up all that type of stuff. And we also want to see where your stress is. So if we look at a good HRV number, if we look at blood pressure, we can get a pretty good and, and heart rate, resting heart rate, we can get a pretty good idea of where's this person, uh, where's their autonomic tone? Are they too sympathetic? Because if they are, that's not great for building muscle because you don't, you're stimulating muscle protein breakdown when you train, but then you have to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And if you're always catabolic because you're in a fight or flight uh, pattern, you don't, your body never rests. You don't sleep well, you don't recover well, you can't train well, your motivation's not there. And and your compliance for meal prep is gonna be great. How much are you looking at, um, like blood markers and urine markers and stool? You ever look at those with clients, or is that just kind of beyond the scope? Only, only when there's a pathological reason. So if we have somebody with Hashimoto's, if we have somebody with diabetes, then I'll take a look at that stuff. And if it's stuff that's easy to fix, um, that we can work with their doctor on, um, then we'll we'll send some literature to the doctor and work with them on that stuff. If it's stuff that's outside of my scope, then I'll refer them to a dietitian. Um, and make sure that we're getting everything signed off of what we're doing. This is one of the topics that I am most interested in and I think has the greatest potential for changing the greatest number of lives. Breathing is the area of focus today. And not only is it breathing, but we went to the top of the top. The guy who is the most referenced person in breathing Patrick McEwen joins us today to give you the breathing masterclass. And he does such an incredible job of taking complex things and simplifying this podcast that I literally think I should just have stepped away and let him take on. It was literally like him standing in front of a class and just riffing on all the most valuable theory and practice. How you can actually take this theory and put it into practice. It was absolutely wealth of information divulged by Patrick today. And, and I'm so grateful for his contribution to the world and his continuous pursuit of all the nuance that exists and all the opportunity that exists in breathing. Doing physical exercise with the mouth closed and just being conscious 
of if you want to improve breathing efficiency, don't breathe fast and shallow because all you're doing is wasting air to dead space. If you really want to increase oxygen delivery from the lungs into the blood, you're much better off breathing slow and low. And this has been looked at. I remember somebody coming into me with chronic heart failure and she was walking in the office here and I had a pulse oximeter on her and her blood oxygen saturation went down to 92% during walking. And I said, this is not ideal. And I said to her, okay, I want you to breathe through your nose and I want you to put your hands either side of your lower ribs and I want you to start walking with lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs. And she continued with the pulse oximeter and we increased her blood oxygen saturation from 92 to 96%. But that's normal. Yeah. There was a study of Kilimanjaro climbers, 39 individuals, two different studies. They were at four and a half thousand meters. Their blood oxygen saturation dropped down. It was 80%, which is severe hypoxia at four and a half thousand meters. And the researchers got the group of 39 individuals to slow down their breathing to six breaths per minute. And their blood oxygen saturation increased from 80% to 89%. So, you know, I suppose the more we talk about what we can do in terms of what weight, you know, what weight build, um, weightlifter doesn't want to have good functioning of the diaphragm breathing muscle. Everyone. You know, you're lifting a weight, you need the abdomen, almost like it's a pneumatic balloon. And that generation of intra-abdominal pressure to prevent the spine from buckling. But that's influenced by functional breathing patterns. So we really need to get that diaphragm going. And whether it's lying on the back with the knees bent and putting it just a slight weight on the abdomen. And as you breathe in, you're pushing the weight upwards. And as you breathe out, you're put, the weight is falling. Or lying on your front and your elbows. So you're lying on your front. And as you breathe in, you're pushing the belly towards the, the, the ground. Yeah. And as you, as you breathe out, the belly is moving back in. Or, for example, taking a normal breath in through your nose and a normal breath out through your nose to functional residual capacity, just a normal breath, but then continuing to exhale, 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 exhale. In other words, getting the diaphragm to move back up to that spotted position. Um, or you could be doing, take a normal breath in through the nose and out through the nose and pinch the nose and try and breathe in and out as you hold your breath to get activation of the diaphragm. So I think it can be done, you know, once people understand the benefits of it and yeah, sure. Of course, it's not going to be for everybody, but um, if, at least people should be offered the choice. So a lot of my audience trains, we work hard and after a workout, we know that we want to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. We probably want to bring down epinephrine. Uh, any suggestions as far as breath? Is there any like research around So obviously we know some, some low, low, slow, and deep breathing can bring down or, or yes. increase our parasympathetic stimulus. Yeah. Is there anything that maybe protocol-wise would be uh, a, a more effective, immediate kind of like stimulus to that parasympathetic tone or, like I said, specific to any of the catecholamine hormones? I think, Ben, you said it there. I think that's it. You know, if you look at the research, it's all about the communication from the body back to the brain. Yeah. If we want to activate parasympathetic tone or improve or increase parasympathetic tone, slow breathing and low breathing. I would say breathe in and out through the nose because maybe a lot of people are post-physical exercise or doing it with an open mouth. So you could have their hands just either side of the lower ribs and even as they're just in the cool down. So they're doing kind of light movement and as they breathe in that they're pushing against the ribs and as they breathe out that the hands are pushing, sorry, as they breathe in their ribs are pushing against their hands mm -hmm. and as they breathe out to feel their hands pushing against the ribs. 
and to slow down the respiratory rate to breathing in for five seconds and out for five seconds. It doesn't have to be perfect, you know, so don't worry about having to look at a watch or anything like that. You have it in your head. You're taking in one, breathe in, two, three, four, five, out, two, three. And that's the best way in terms of helping, you know, increase parasympathetic tone. Peter Crone is somebody I recently heard on a podcast and I was just absolutely blown away and I had to have him on our podcast. We spent days reaching out to Peter's team, weeks getting him on here, and ultimately now he's here to share his incredible wisdom on how we can all learn to access and unlock our subconscious and unconscious programming. The programming that ultimately runs our life, that runs our reality. Your beliefs, your identity create your reality. So if you're someone who's looking to express the greatness that is within inside of you right this minute, this podcast is for you. You're going to love Peter and his explanation of how we ultimately all can unwind all these belief systems. I really just invite people to have a little more patience and and kindness with themselves and others is that unless you really can unpack and undo the subconscious patterns that are driving your behaviors, then you, you don't have control. It's really, there's no choice. Choice is a complete illusion. You know, people are being driven by these automated habits. And so until you get responsibility, then, you know, I just invite people to just be a little softer. Like one of my quotes, I say, you can't be held accountable for that which you're oblivious to. And, and if people just got that, it really opens up a whole new world of being sensitive and being kind and patient and compassionate with people, knowing that everyone's got their own cross that they're carrying. And certainly these patterns, which are so insidious and so deep, and especially the older we get, they're, they're way more convincing than... Um, you know, humans are truly doing the best they can, even though on the surface, it looks like it's pretty abhorrent what they're doing. I love that. And that's so true, right? We walk around, uh, you know, passing people day to day, and they're completely unaware of their actions, their responses, their behaviors. So we, we start placing judgment on them, we start getting angry, and then it triggers us, right? Mm -hmm. that, ultimately, we're the only ones that suffer because they're not even aware of it. So exactly. True. Yeah. So, so, so you said 10 things are the primary focus of your book, and I don't want you to re reveal them all. Yeah. Maybe you could pick one or two key ones that are like the primary triggers for people. For sure. I, I like to talk about non-enoughness because I think who no matter who it is, everyone's had their version. You know, obviously some of your perhaps more mature listeners, you know, maybe they've been through stuff, they got over their feeling of having to impress people or be a people pleaser or whatever it is. But these would be the behavioral adaptations, right? These are compensation patterns from a deep-seated feeling of not enoughness. Then ironically, we can go into a one of two directions. It, usually, we either try to mitigate and disprove the, the view of ourselves that is deleterious, or we go right into it, right? So either way, you look at, say, a homeless person who has become a drug addict and basically lost everything is now on the streets, or a guy or a woman who's in the corner office with a, a nice, you know, shiny gold-like name tag on the front of their desk and they drive a Mercedes and life is good. It looks so drastically different on the surface, but I would assert from the perspective of the subconscious narratives, they're both being driven by the same potential conversation. 
one bought into it. I'm not enough. No one gives a shit about me. And so it was an easy pathway to taking substances as a, as a way of mitigating the suffering of abandonment and finding relief through, to begin with, maybe cigarettes, alcohol, then marijuana. And then it you know got heavier and heavier until such time that the costs literally and figuratively became so big that that person ends up on the streets. They are being driven by the same narrative as the person who's in the corner office who perhaps felt not, not, not enough because their dad was perhaps sort of the quintessential high school coach type who, even though the person got a B, it should have been an A. And what happened here? Or I can remember one of my MLB guys who, you know, guy's getting paid millions of dollars because he's exquisitely talented and he could go four for five in a game, which is extraordinary, you know, to be batting 800 in a game. And he'd still kind of have a frown on his face. And it's like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, you know, and eventually we got down to the fact that his dad, when he went four for five in, you know, Little League or whatever as a junior, his dad, went, what happened to the fifth at bat? Right. So that's his programming of like, even though that's extraordinary, the way it was interpreted and contextualized for him was that he still made a mistake. So the person in the corner office can still be driven by the not enoughness. But the way that they compensated for it was to make sure that they do everything they can not to display it. The homeless person is in it. The person who's got this sort of fabulous superficial life with material success is doing everything they can to transcend it and overcome it. Either way, until you realize that the truth, which is my work, is to take it down to that core conversation of I'm not enough and see it for what it is, which is a conversation. It's not a truth for either of them. The homeless guy might literally have been raised by a single parent who had a meth addiction and the dad was in prison. And so then not enoughness manifested as trying to find a sense of belonging in a gang, which then led to the whole world of whatever drugs and crime versus the other one who's not enough saw that their older sibling was a greater athlete or more accomplished in academia and they got a lot more attention. So they, they felt that their insufficiencies was the catalyst for them, like kind of a screw you to the dad of like, I'll prove to you that I can do well. Either way, neither of them are free. So for them to be able to go back to, and this is again, like my work with anyone is to go back to those moments and go, okay, you, to your point that you made earlier, there's the event and then there's the interpretation. So, okay, you saw that your brother, your sister got the accolade, got the bigger gift for their birthday because they did well. You interpreted that as you're not enough. Is that is that an absolute truth that that meant that you're not enough because they got more gifts? No, it means they got more gifts. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're not enough. So at the moment that somebody sees that, that revelation is so liberating. It doesn't mean that that person still can't enjoy a corner office and a fancy car and a big home. Great, have at it. But you no longer need it as a means of trying to find external value to compensate for the lack of internal value. And equally, the person on the street Okay, maybe you didn't have a, a semblance of like stability, love, and security in the home where you were reassured and you were acknowledged. You don't know the language of appreciation because you never received it. But it doesn't mean that beneath the surface of that dialogue, that who you are isn't inherently valuable. You just haven't found it. So being able to reflect that to people is just so, so gratifying and fulfilling. And when, when those lights go on, it's so beautiful to witness somebody come out of the prison of their own dialogue that they've invariably had for three, four, five decades.
Nutrition is a topic that seems to be very confusing. There's so many people out there shouting really loud about things that they believe to be accurate. And then there's other people out there who seem to be at the top of the totem pole teaching principles that, from my experience, are relatively consistent across the board in the people who actually understand nutrition. Today's guest is an absolute brilliant nutritionist. And I'm so grateful that Sam Miller joined me today to talk about nutrition principles. Sam and I dive into ultimately how to help you make better decisions around nutrition. Nutrition is this thing where people try to enforce tactics. Try this fad diet, try this supplement, try this cardio regime, whatever it happens to be to transform your body in a short amount of time, rather than giving you tools or principles from which from which you can make effective decisions. And I'm so grateful for Sam giving us his time and his wisdom today. Do you change the way people eat in the summertime relative to the winter um, in accordance with sunlight exposure, right? So there's been, I don't know if I'm sure you're familiar, some data suggesting there's a greater insulin utilization in the summertime because of sun, uh, infrared light exposure improves insulin sensitivity, improves testosterone production. So I'm curious if you ever take that into consideration. Obviously, that's a very high level thing. It wouldn't be something that you would take into account with most people, but curious your thoughts on, on that and just the cyclical nature of all dieting. For sure. So this, I'll touch on the cyclical nature of dieting. And also uh, what's really interesting about what you just mentioned in terms of light exposure is I recently was diving into some things on that realm with vitamin D and kind of looking at it, um, sometimes low vitamin D levels as a proxy for inflammation and, and those connections there. And sometimes what we see with hormonal dysregulation. So super fascinating that you kind of brought that up. Um, I think with most clients where I'm implementing what I call the seasons of nutrition, which is literally designed to explain that sort of seasonality, is going to depend on where were they when they essentially uh, arrived with their coach. Because a lot of what I do now is essentially uh, mentoring coaches and how to sort of layer these approaches into client transformation. So if someone's been in a diet phase and they did so successfully, I don't need to br bring them into this phase or season where we are burning through physiological bandwidth again. Really what we need to do is prioritize recovery or essentially what I would refer to as a break or build phase. And then once they've sort of reestablished this homeostasis, whether that's in terms of biofeedback or hormonal function, as well as uh, potentially just getting to a healthy body composition, we may then, and, and the performance or output that they're really seeking, we may then bring them back into a diet again and, and find that it's okay to burn through that bandwidth. Um, and, and we're kind of toggling it's very similar, I guess you could think to the idea of hormesis and periodic sort of stressors and exposing the body to that and allowing it to adapt. So I do implement the seasonality. I would say that from a practicality perspective, Ben, if I was not working with a higher level athlete or a very, very serious lifestyle client who really uh, is willing to mold their life around transformation, I just think in terms of uh, culture and holiday, like just the way that people sort of operate in today's modern age that the circadian nutrition concept and the actual adherence and sustainability behind that, I think would be reserved for a select group of clients. That's just my experience based on coaches working with lifestyle clients. However, with athletes or potentially people, you know, I, I have a guy who is just very into trying, he, he will just try uh, just about anything 
And I could see something like that where he would be totally willing to do that. But we also have to think what other components are driving, uh, like you mentioned, insulin and uh, carbohydrate utilization. Is it because when it's sunny, we're actually outside more and we're moving more? Or is it, you know, uh, or were we looking at this solely from the mechanistic perspective of, well, I got sun exposure, there was vitamin D synthesis, and that had a change on um, basically with vitamin D being a hormone that influenced what was going on in my physiology. So I think it's, you could look at it either direction and try to structure it that way. I would say in terms of um, the efficacy of that for clients and sort of the mainstream population, I think would be difficult to implement and have concrete data around. But I, I do see where you're coming from, from an evolutionary perspective, anthropological perspective, and that there might be some value to that uh, for folks who can adhere to it and who enjoy um you know, sort of the seasonality or these toggles that we're talking about. It's the same sort of concept that, you know, if we were looking at sort of hunter gatherers or even foraging and what, and what might be available during certain times of year, there are definitely folks who sort of refer to these times as kind of like a metabolic winter of sorts. And um, definitely would be interesting to have uh, a longer sort of observational period in modern society of seeing if we were to, if we were able to improve people's health markers following that. But I do think we have some confounding variables in terms of you know, is it simply the change in the season and the weather, or is it because of what people are doing when that weather changes, right? Yeah. So um, I think that's a big thing. Plus, we also have the confounding variable. We have gyms now. We can work out inside versus previously we're only exercising outdoors. Also, with the way sort of modern agriculture and food production works, you know, things are available you know, at times of the year that otherwise never would have been in human history. So right. I think we certainly have some confounding variables and challenges there, but I, I do like sort of your alternative perspective on how someone might approach that. Dr. Andrew Huberman just released a podcast recently that's worth listening to on uh, hormones, specifically mentioning um, the seasonality of dopamine, testosterone, and inflammation in the wintertime as it decreases, sorry, vitamin D, uh, dopamine, testosterone, as they are decreasing in the in the winter time because of less sunlight exposure, therefore uh, lowering potentially lowering insulin sensitivity was was super interesting, worth listening to. Uh, that's kind of where that thought came up for me, and I tend to follow more of a ketogenic approach in the winter time. When, as you say, I'm definitely moving less, I'm definitely getting less sunshine. Um, and it's almost like I use it as like a metabolic reset. And I may do it for six weeks. I may do it for three months, uh, depending how my body composition is, depending how my stress levels are, depending how my performance is. Um, but I'll usually implement it at, at some extent uh, over those winter months. And I, and I think, you know, it seems to be a very useful approach. And then in the summertime, I'm really cranking up the carbohydrates, dropping in the fats a little bit. And, um, you know, it seems to be a effective cyclical approach. I feel great. My brain seems to work well. So kind of leveraging that um, that uh, message there into uh, maybe your thoughts on a ketogenic approach and how much you use that with people and if you see any benefit or if, is it just a fad? So I think one thing that you've done, I think that you try to do through your content, right, is maybe when you're in ketosis or you're using things like olive oil, right? You're taking concepts from maybe a Mediterranean diet style or what we know about different sort of fatty acids and also what's wrong with the standard American diet and, and following through on a higher fat diet that includes monounsaturated fats, potentially DHA and EPA, uh, maybe improved omega-3 to omega-6 ratios. I think the problem we see in Western society is folks see uh, ketogenesis and rather than viewing it as a tool and how to still make healthy food choices within that framework, you know, we end up basically either with 
sort of inappropriate ratios or inappropriate food decisions, there's a big difference between having a combination of animal fats and some plant fats from something like, um, you know, good quality olive oil or avocado or macadamia nut oil or like a lower carbohydrate nut, if you were to use that in a a ketogenic approach. I think just the overall um, sort of profile that you're creating in your body as a result of that is entirely different than someone who is going to take that I'm going to eat as much bacon and cheese as possible in, in ketosis. And so I I would say there's variables there where, you know, once again, it comes down to, yes, maybe I have this sort of macronutrient percentage that I need to actually get into ketosis, but what food choices am I actually utilizing to optimize that state of lower carbohydrate? Uh, and, and certainly I think I've, I've seen folks who really enjoy it and like it for the cognitive perspective. The studies that we see are primarily around sort of epilepsy and neurological conditions there. I think it's definitely a tool. Um, some, some folks anecdotally for autism and, and other sort of spectrum related conditions that it could be a valuable tool there. So, uh, I'm certainly not against the situational use of it. I would just say the modern sort of, uh, bastardized, for lack of a better word, approach to ketosis and not making, not viewing it as how do I fill out this fat with quality foods? And maybe, you know, doing that with grass-fed meats, maybe you consume some wild-caught fish or um, a good quality olive oil. And and even looking at things like that, that's where we could take something like, how do we take this idea of ketosis and maybe data that we have, like from Predimed study or something like that, or looking at, you know, the Mediterranean diet and understanding the role of monounsaturated fats as well as omega-3s. How could we carry that over and sort of fuse that and blend that to create an optimal diet style for someone who needs to sort of um, reduce carbohydrates or maybe feels that they thrive best on that sort of state. Now, I would say one of the reasons that I think that ketogenic approach works for you during the winter, you said you're moving less. It might be a lower physical stress period versus intense training bouts. And so I think when we're kind of in this sort of eat less, exercise less phase, what we did is we changed both toggles. It wasn't high stress. And I also went down to eating no carbs. If you're doing a lot of glycolytic exercise, or we see people in CrossFit trying to follow keto, or or maybe people with very high volume sort of bodybuilding training, I I think we do sort of see a little bit of compromised performance there. And once again, bringing it back to what fat are you using to actually achieve this sort of ketogenic state? And how are you sort of balancing that out in terms of your overall choices? Every one of us who aspires to change our life, to ascend the mountain that is life, has to overcome some limiting beliefs and ascend through some behavior change in life. So if you're someone who has any goals in life, you're going to absolutely love my conversation with Casey Joe Arvidas, a previous athlete, now someone who instructs coaches and coaches herself. She's an absolute wealth of information. We get into what drives excellence, uh, ultimately what creates a wedge between stimulus and response, how to fit, how to overcome a fixed mindset, step into a growth mindset, the body-mind connection, the inextricable nature of the body and the mind that so many people don't acknowledge. So many people work in silos and think these things are separate, when in reality, they're the same. And ultimately, how we can begin to alter our unconscious beliefs to step into our true greatness. what we see is that expectations for um, the outcome, like what you think it's going to do for you. Also, you know, how much you value the utility in exercise, um, how much you identify, um, like fitness identity, I believe was even the, the variable that I used. Once you identify as an exerciser, all of those things 
and self-efficacy, you know, your ability to work, continue to work towards things um, in the face of setbacks, all of those things are what leads to more exercise. And it's the growth mindset that's sort of turning those things up. So that's sort of like the connection there. So we have growth mindset about health and fitness leads to us feeling like we have maybe a stronger identity to exercise. We expect more from exercise. It's sort of like you're kind of like trusting the outcome of exercise, like putting that time and effort in. Uh, we have a, a more ability to work through barriers and obstacles on the way to our health and fitness goals, all because of that growth mindset. But it's all that stuff in the middle that I just mentioned is what actually leads to the behavior change. So that's what's really cool. Um, it's not necessarily like a direct, like I said, growth mindset to more exercise process. It's a lot of other stuff kind of going on in between. So I love that you asked that question because it is really important. And could we say, you know, oh, is it maybe identifying as an exerciser or identifying as someone who is like interested in health and fitness maybe leads to the growth mindset and not the other way around? Sure, absolutely. Like that could be a thing. Also don't have any research on that. Also would love to go back and do that. <laughs> but um, yes, that makes sense too. But what's important here is that sort of like, the A to B to C, right? So A being mindset, B being all of these kind of expectation, value, identity sort of variables, and C being the actual increase in behavior. And that is how that path kind of looks. So someone doesn't currently identify as these ideal behaviors or these, or these ideal uh, identities, mm -hmm. what's the first step? Is it, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. What is the first step, right? Is it is it writing it down? Is it is it uh, it, you know, affirmations? Is it just like starting to say, hey, I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm going to become this person? Is it setting the goal? What are, what are your beliefs as far as what the first steps in action are? Yeah, so I actually have kind of a, a different perspective on this being like from the mindset realm. Um, I don't like trying to get people to I need to figure out the best way to say this, but trying to get people to see it as like, I have to be a type of person mm -hmm. to do this, right? Um, I think that sometimes that can be more detrimental than like actually beneficial because then what mm -hmm. we turn this into is, oh, like I have to be a certain person in order to be successful. And in reality, like I think we all know like, okay, yes, the idea here is that you're building these habits, behaviors, lifestyle that makes you this type of person, but no one is born a certain way to do these things, right? And I think inherently this idea of like, you are the type of person or you aren't is a very like sort of almost like inborn trait way to look at things. Um, whether or not it's, we're seeing that directly, I think, you know, people scroll through Instagram, they see, you know, the hashtag Fitzbo girls with their matching Gymshark gym outfits and, and think like, oh, she's the type of person who is able to live a healthy and fit lifestyle. And I'm over here as a mom of three children and I have three dogs and you know, we're all working from home these days. And it's like, I just can't be that person. So what happens is fixed mindset crops up of like, well, I'm not her, I'm not that type of person. So then I'm never going to be able to do this. That's the, that's my fear of the whole like, oh, try to right. be, just try to be that type of person. Right. I think if you take it a different direction and think like, how do I be my, my best self? Or like, what is the most ideal scenario for me? You know, where do my current values and priorities lie? And what do I actually want them to look like? Like those are more beneficial, productive exercise right. exercises than, you know, assuming that you have to be like 
yeah, you're just that person or you're not. If I that love makes it. Sense. Something that came up is just even in the words you use, like um, wanting to versus having to. I think that's a big one, you know, with respect to this identity I'm trying to identify yeah. as is like, I want to become more like this person, right? So um, one thing that comes up for me there when you say that is process versus outcome goals. So maybe wanting to be someone who, who identifies as an exerciser just looks like, hey, I'm just going to choose because I want to, to exercise once a day or to eat well every day as just like a daily objective. So I'm being attached to the process rather than the outcome. Is that something you've ever looked at? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, that's a big piece in uh, mindset in general and growth mindset is this idea of like, oh, just focus on the process instead of always focusing focusing on the outcome. Like that's, it's a, it's a part of it, but it's not all of it for sure. So um, it's important. And I think we also know this from just like at face value, like if we're always, you know, focusing on that outcome all of the time, that thing that we really want, the thing that we really want to achieve, it does make it harder on a day-to-day process to do all of like the little shit basically mm-hmm. <laughs> that is required of you to get there. So that makes sense to me. Um, there's actually to not like go too far off um, on a tangent here. There's some research on sub goals, which is this idea of setting these sort of like smaller goals along the way to a larger outcome. And the research is relatively mixed on whether or not you should set this like long-term outcome and, you know, put it on the, it's like your phone screen background. You're putting sticky notes everywhere. Like always reminding yourself of that long-term thing, which is things we hear a lot, right? Like, Oh, like just put it somewhere. So you always like think about it. Um, research is relatively mixed and how that can be somewhat like deceiving because it is like maybe so far away. And if you're always thinking about it, you just like get sick of working towards it and not feeling like you're making significant progress. That can be an issue. But on the flip side, it's, oh, that you're kind of keeping this top of mind. So it's, it's always sort of salient, no matter like what decisions you make, things that you do, that's part of like your thought process. So because the research is mixed, like it's good, it's bad. What we actually found more recently, um, and this was, I can't remember the year that this paper came out, but um, they essentially looked at this and was like, what's going on here? Are like, should we set smaller goals? Should we focus on the long-term outcome goal? What the heck? Um, And what they found was that near the beginning, it is important to set those sub goals as they call them. So set smaller term, shorter term goals first. And as you start to approach, you know, kind of see the light at the end of tunnel situation, then you can focus on the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's what's going to kind of help you keep pushing forward because you're like almost there type of thing. Um, so it's a little bit of both. So with that said, you know, when it comes to this idea of like moving towards like more identity or just like trying to keep up with doing these things on a day-to-day basis, I think setting those smaller goals first is important. And then maybe as you start to approach that long-term goal, that's when you should focus it on it more. Of course, there's always going to be outliers. People are always going to be different. And like this research isn't like a rule by any means, um, but that is an interesting component that kind of comes up with that. I've put on so much muscle onto my puny little frame that I've learned a lot along the way. And I want to share some of that wisdom with you today, as I always do in the Muscle Intelligence community on Facebook and through my programming and courses online. Um, I want to offer you some insight and perspective on how you can ultimately make the most of your time in the gym. So dig in, get comfortable, grab a pen. Let's do this. start with an open mind and maybe explore the possibility that there's more to exercise than simply working hard. Because if you're someone who's at home right now or driving in the car, driving to the gym or wherever you are, 
and you're of the belief that working hard is your only lever or your biggest lever even to make progress, I'm here to tell you you're wrong. There's so much you can do that precedes effort that will get exponential progress, right? So if you're an athlete, if you've ever played a sport, a good, a good metaphor you use is typing on a, on a keyboard or, or even maybe type playing on a piano. If you've ever, obviously everyone's typed on a keyboard, if you've ever played a piano, when you start, typically what do you do? Everyone starts with one finger. If you do it long enough, you can get pretty good typing with one finger. If somebody comes along and says to you, hey, I've got this better way, but it requires you using all of your fingers and you start it and you try it and you're like, oh my gosh, this feels terrible. I can't do this. And you're going slower at first. You're like, oh my gosh, this is this doesn't feel very good. I feel very uncoordinated. It actually causes me pain because like, oh, my ego says I used to be faster at when I was just using one finger. So I'm just going to go back to that. Screw this. But if you think about it, it's pretty darn obvious that typing with all of your fingers is going to be faster than one finger. You may have heard me talk about this metaphor in the past, but it's important to think about. So when I'm coming to you and I'm saying, hey, I can teach you effectively how to apply that principle to your training, think of how much more effective your training could actually be. When we actually say, hey, stop using one finger, let's use them all. We can be so much more effective. And guess what? You don't even have to work hard. You can actually make huge amounts of progress in really short amount, short amount of time, not ever having to work hard or go fast. Just like, let's, let's be intentional about this. Let's teach our fingers how to play the piano and teach our muscles how to contract when it comes to the gym. And all of a sudden, results become effectively exponential over what they would have been in the past. And that's a really great metaphor for what I want to teach you guys today. So thank you for listening to my story. Now on to the good stuff, on to the goods. So when I frame a body transformation, whether you're a client or whether I'm teaching as a coach, I frame it under the premise of the six pillars of a lean, healthy, and muscular body. You guys have heard me talk about this before. What are those pillars? So here's the way I frame this. So sometimes fitness can be incredibly daunting. It seems like there's just so much to think about. There's so many things. There's so many aspects of fitness. In reality, if you break it down, there aren't. There's only actually six things that you can do to impact your body. Did you know that? There's really six things. Now, under those subcategories of each six, there's a lot, but there's really only six what I call inputs that go into the system. So here's how I want you to envision this. Envision your body as an internal system. Assume it was, it's always engaging with the external world, right? Your internal body is always interacting and engaging with the external world. And there's only six points of interaction with the external world. So the way those six points are uh, occurring around you influences how the internal body will express. So all these external signals create an internal response. So think that, think about that. So right now I'm staring at my window, I'm looking at the sun, going into my eyes. My body is receiving that information and maybe turning on certain genes, maybe causing certain hormonal responses, maybe doing certain things with certain vitamins and, and cells in my body, but it's ultimately interpreting the light, it's interpreting the air, it's interpreting my movement, it's interpreting these six things. I'm going to tell you what they are right now. So these are what we call the six pillars of a lean, healthy, and muscular body. So one, and in no particular order, one is movement. Two is nutrition or nourishment. So it's what we, the way we move, what we eat, how we think, how we breathe, how we sleep. That's five. So refresh your memory. Movement, eating, thinking, breathing, sleeping. And the sixth one, the environment in which we do these things. So there's six things. If you think, if you break it down, those are the only six inputs. That's all you can do. So if you can take control of those six things, you can change your body. 
So now instead of you think of 8,000 different things that everyone's yelling and screaming and everyone's saying, this could be this, it's got to be that. Which one of these is the most important lever for you right now? So if we were to assess those, let's say we assess them on a scale of one to five or one to 10 or one to 100, whatever works for you. Which one for you is the greatest deficit, has the greatest disparity between where you are and where you want to be? And if we want to influence it, we simply start taking action to influence it. So now we realize when there's only six things to influence, it feels like to me, it's an empowering place to come at the world because I go, oh, well, I can influence those. Am I getting enough movement? Is it good quality movement? Am I getting enough nutrition? Is it good quality nutrition? Or am I getting too much nutrition? How are my thoughts? Can I create systems to influence my thinking and my perception? How is my breathing? Because my breathing is a huge influence on my internal physiology. How is my sleep? And ultimately, how is my environment? So I'm going to go into each of those in coming episodes. I'm not going to go into all of those today, but here's what I want you to know. Not one is more important than the other. Why? When you talk to a nutritionist, the nutritionist will say, you know what? Nutrition is the most important thing. When you talk to someone who's a movement expert or a trainer, say, nutrition or sorry, training is the most important thing, right? And when you talk to someone who's a sleep expert, oh, sleep is by far the most important thing. Here's the reality. None of them are the most important, except depending on who you're referring to. So if you're someone who maybe lacks in one of these areas, then maybe it is the most important for you. But if you're someone who's very good at it, maybe it's not that important. So it's important to acknowledge that ultimately any of these can be the most important lever for you. And you want to learn how to influence all of them. So whether you're a coach or you're someone just learning to uh, transform your body, this is the framework. So literally picture yourself on a big whiteboard, put a big happy smiley face on, your, on yourself, and all these external signals exist around you, and they're creating this internal response, this internal environment in the body that then turns on certain genes, turns off certain other genes, and expresses the way you look on the outside. So if you don't like the way your body looks on the outside, it's the sum total of all of these six pillars put into one and then expressing itself externally. Thanks once again to our sponsor, Organifi, for hooking us up with 20% off the highest quality greens, reds, and golden milk product that I've ever used. Just absolutely phenomenal products. Um, so the reds product, as I say, is probably my personal favorite that I consistently use on a regular basis. I love it for its vasodilation properties. So uh, if you guys don't understand that red drinks tend to increase nitric oxide. They tend to allow for a little bit better um, vasodilation of, of the uh, vascular system. So I'm a huge fan of that product right around the workouts, either as a pre-workout, sometimes even as an intra-workout, or certainly as a post-workout recovery drink to just, just accelerate recovery for me. And I also use the golden milk product oftentimes before bed. It's loaded with turmeric and adaptogens to help support the parasympathetic nervous system. And believe me when I tell you, it tastes phenomenal. It's absolutely a nice treat. So if you're someone who likes to have a little treat after dinner before bed, I highly suggest you check out the golden milk formula from Organifi. Thanks guys for being here. Once again, I appreciate you. I know you guys have many podcasts to choose from, and I'm super grateful you continue coming back to mine. Have a great day and live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. 
This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.